well, who am I talking to today, I guess? Uh, my name's Jonathan Schoenfelder. I'm a librarian. I live in Idaho. Um, I am a poet, um, a dungeon master. Um, Pokemon champion? Uh, yes, a, a multiple-time Pokemon champion. Yeah, and um, I guess I wanted to... We were just talking before we started, and you were talking about how you listen to like theory through your Kindle. Maybe you could like how do so how did you like get into theory and like how do you like consume it or whatever? Um, so I I guess the the starting point of it was through my interest in like game design because I was interested in you know I I play video games I'm I'm of the right age to play video games a lot and so I wanted to know more and more about video games and particularly about design and design philosophy when I came across Mackenzie Work. Um, the gamer theory, which was this really just really cool, dense book about games, and if anyone's familiar with Mackenzie work, like she's a very good, very very good writer in my opinion. Um, and so that just started getting me into trying to look more and more into this, in into different texts that she references, and that you know those texts reference from there. And at a at a certain point. Um, at the same time, I was doing a lot of poetry and reading and writing poetry. It just became, you know, it's it's sometimes it's difficult to read that stuff, especially if they are like really dense and really clustered kinds of things. And so, what I've found has been really useful has been um, finding like a text-to-speech function um, to use text-to-speech to sort of have it. Uh, so, I at at the time when I really started to read a lot of it i was also working as an animal cremator and so i would have to drive around to these different a animal you know shelters or veterinarian clinics and pick up animals to cremate and so for a while i would just listen to the same like five david bowie albums and like two iggy pop albums and some punk music but eventually i I figured out I could use this text-to-speech and just listen to these really dense philosophical texts, like I started with a lot of Agamben um, and Deleuze and stuff, but have it sort of speak to me as I'm driving um, books that don't usually wind up as audiobooks. And yeah, the, yeah, yeah, no, those books are really hard to find as audiobooks. That's one of my main with audiobooks is that the academic presses and verso cough cough never does them oh yeah yeah i think man i think that if they wanted to they really could just like and and you know you don't need you know you don't need who like morgan freeman to read your audiobook you can just get someone who like is a competent reader or who has you know a nice sonorous voice and just pay them to read it I don't know. Yeah, I think that'd be a good idea. Oh, so you got into theories through like um, looking through the references of looking through the references of books. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there, there's a lot of that, and then I, you know, I have a couple of friends like uh, David W. Pritchard is is someone who I always um, I I admire David very much, um, and so. David will talk about something like he'll always talk about Adorno. And so that will sort of key me in like, Hey, he talks about this stuff. 
And so I can ask him about it. And if it sounds like something I'm interested in, I can sort of follow a thread that he sort of introduces to me. And then that just goes off. Yeah. And like, so I guess when did you start? When did you start feeling like, I guess, more, more comfortable with theory? When did that happen for you? Uh, hmm. I mean, it, it took, it, it took a lot of, 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 of doing it, I think, because in the end, I, well, uh, maybe let me put it this way. Um, the, the biggest thing that I sort of have gained in, in being able to handle it is like being willing to ask a lot of questions about things and, and asking like not asking not to prove like how smart or clever I am, but asking to figure it out and accepting that like asking the question, you might end up not looking very clever to ask a really basic question. And, and if you, find if you find people who are nice enough to answer your questions when you ask them um then that that sort of i i would i think is sort of how i got more into into reading theory is that i would be able to ask questions of people that you know i i assumed was a really basic question or that i was afeared was a basic question that would sort of reveal me to be an like someone who's not actually familiar with these things but over time like that sort of accumulates and you start to be more comfortable with those things because you got you know you got meaningful answers to some of them and so you can just keep piling on more and more of those questions i don't know if there was a specific or particular moment um but like the 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 dialectic maybe is is a a big one where it's like it's something that people talk about a lot or people say things about um and gets thrown about in a couple of different ways and so my eternal question for a long time was like what what is the dialectic or what are dialectics or you know however people phrase that yeah and i guess that for me it was a the similar thing it was just a gradual process of where eventually I started to feel like I got it more. And, you know, having someone too, like uh, David Pritchard or someone who kn around who knows a lot of theory also has always been really helpful, whether it's someone like that or a professor or whatever, because a lot of the time it's easy, it helps a lot when you have someone to talk to about it, I guess. Yeah, and, you know, that that was one of the... I went to graduate school for an MFA. And that was probably one of the, the most meaningful and useful parts about it was just being in contact with people who have read a lot of things and being able to ask them questions and not even just like professors or visiting writers, but even just people in my cohort. Um, uh, Holly Raymond was my roommate while I was at an MFA. And she's not only a really great poet, but a very good reader. Like I, so much of what she read and what I was able to ask her like as she was reading it or as I was reading something that I thought was related to it um, being able to have something like a group of people to talk to about things that you're reading or that they're reading is just really like it's a really big thing and that's where 
you know, like if there's if there's something hopeful or useful about the internet, it's that like actually being able to contact a lot of people, even if you don't have a lot of proximity to them. I think you were also talking before we started recording about how theory is something you um, like that comes that I guess comes and goes in your daily life as you, as you see things that remind you of various things or you know help you interpret the world in various ways. So like how like oh sorry, uh, I. So I spend a lot of my time working at a library, and I think that working at a library is is really great. I'd recommend it to anyone who has the opportunity to do it. Um, and I, you know, I I think working for the public and working in a public facing setting, working for the public, is one where you're faced with a lot of different dilemmas. That if you're just doing the way that you were raised to do something or you're just doing the thing based on sort of what's the immediate or easiest to hand, I think a lot of times you can make like really, really bad things happen without even recognizing it. Like if there's someone who needs a lot of help or needs help doing something and your immediate response is like, well, if they don't know how to do it, like I can't, I can't spend all of this time teaching them this thing because I need to go and, you know, do this and that. I have to work. I have to be a diligent worker or whatever. Th theory for me is, is I, I think it's, it's useful on the day to day because it gives you sort of a, a, a way to see a moment when you can like, not just do something that's automatic or something that is entrained and is actually something where you can sort of, you can make a decision or make a choice or make something different happen. You can say to the someone who needs to learn something like, you know, I, I think a lot of the time the image of theory for, for better or for worse is like this very like cerebral removed and distant thing and I can definitely see where where that comes from because I think a lot of people maybe approach it that way or experience it that way because it is a very cerebral and very mentally challenging thing. But um, but I think you can direct it towards finding ways to have compassion for people or recognizing how you can affect a situation to make like even just like a little bit of time better for a person. Yeah, totally. And I think that that kind of approach really comes through very strongly in your poems, which is really cool to read. Like there's a, it always feels like there's that underlying theory there, but there's always so much more going on. So like, you know, you were telling me before that, you know, there's you, there's like a quote for, well, not a quote, but a paraphrase of, you know, the Mark's 1844 um, manuscript in there. And also, you know, you there's scenes where you're, you know, helping someone in the in the main in the in the chat book, and I just, I guess, how do you how do you bring that to poetry? So so when it when it comes to to poems, I I feel kind of like a I don't know if it's weird or unusual or what, but I'm like very highly like formally driven, and I think in some ways it's just that when I was learning a lot about when I was learning a lot and having a very strong kind of writing practice, like the things that were in vogue were like language poetry, 
um, or like latter day language poetry, which is maybe even a weirder thing, like not not even Bernstein, but like the people who came after Bernstein or not even like Rutherford, but the people who were inspired by Rutherford and just like being like a latter day language poet. And so like language and form are really big in that. Um, but then also like all through college, I was a punk rocker. And so there was also this desire to like speak, you know, speak to a scene speak to a group of people and have a kind of like an energetic experience with that kind of speaking um and so i i guess how i how i bring it into poetry is that's 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 kind of a that's a harder thing i guess to get around well, I guess I guess let me ask you here too. Maybe is a good time. You mentioned you're formally driven, you know, and at the end of the chapbook, you mentioned you know how you composed it on scraps of paper. Maybe that's a good way into it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> no, thank so, you. <laughs> so, yeah, when when I was when I was writing those poems, it was off of the scrap paper that they have at libraries. They just have a lot of scrap papers and pencils around so that people, you know, if they look up something in the catalog, they can write down a call number or if they read something and they need to take a note of it. Um, so you have a lot of scrap paper around. Um, and there's this thing that I learned about Emily Dickens. Um her poetry where um, if you, if you read the way that they are on the page, um, you, you might see it as like a continuous manuscript, but the way that they were composed, it's possible that they were actually just like uh, folded sheets of paper that were put one against the other that were able to be taken apart and then rearranged. Um, so not, not together like a signature, but, single pages um, sort of following each other in sequence. And so I thought that, well, I have all this scrap paper and a little bit of downtime in between people wanting to check out books or having questions. I'll just write a little poem on one side of the paper. And then if I catch another moment later, I'll write another poem on the other side of the paper that's kind of about the poem that I had written before. And so um, during the time, it was really just over the summer um, I worked at a branch. Um, and so I would just do this. And at the end of the day, I would have like five or six of these folded sheets of paper that I just put in a stack. Um, uh, eventually I left, I figured out I would leave that job in, you know, a couple of weeks, um, to start working full time at the library I'd worked at before. So I thought, well, now that I have this big pile, I'll just put them all together in, in that kind of a way where instead of it being, you know, a sort of like a perfectly form sort of flow through the whole thing or an arc or a narrative, just have them be these little pairs of poems that are set side by side. And so the, the space constraint is a, is a big one. You, you really, you can't get too many ideas in that thing and still, I rather, I cannot get, too many ideas in a little space like that and still be satisfied with like what I have made. Cause if I try too much, it's like, get out of here. Like, what are you doing? Come, come back later. Um, 
but if it's if it's few it's okay if it's just like like a one line or two lines so few ideas that's all right too many ideas write another poem yeah and it and like the way i guess the poems read it kind of reflects that in that um there there's like a very loose association between them but it's not like the loose association of say um like the lot of like it's not like the loose associations of say like like the typical free association in poetry it's more i guess it reads like you you came back later and and wrote another poem that makes sense yeah yeah i and and that doesn't only have the virtue of of being true but also i think it makes it makes for it makes for an interesting kind of um like a something something happens there between those things and juxtaposition is just like a a description of what that is but having that juxtaposition work i think it works and you know i i think too you can the the podcast is a little bit in there because it's all just like gathering up what whatever is around in a lot of ways um so like your 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 conversation with um jordan davis is in there um a, a little bit yeah the one about the one about the otters yeah yeah well and then and then the bread and his his thing about um lynn i think he, he was referencing lynn Hyginian of like or it, it was either lynn Hyginian or lisa roberts or both. i think i uh, i don't think he referenced lisa roberts if i'm recalling right so it's probably lynn Hyginian. Uh, but but the idea of like this disclosure like you you sort of like play at this act of disclosure in order to create like a a vulnerability in a person um so like you're disclosing yourself or you're obscuring your ob disclosure or you're um like offering a disclosure and then retracting it um and that being like that that play of personal information being something that is um it's interesting but also like you have to be kind of skeptical or questionable about whether it's good or not and and for me that's something where that's kind of like that's an ethical question about i i see that as an ethical question that sort of fits into library work because we have so much of people's personal information and we have to have their personal information in order to do the things in the library that we want to do but also we have to be careful about their personal information, both disclosing it to them and disclosing it to other people, how we manage and protect it. And then like, how is gathering up all this personal information about people? How is like, we use that in order to do things for libraries, but is that, is that really good? Like it, should, should we be doing it to the extent that we do it? Um, those are those are things that you know kind of pop up pop up in in my mind and then you have a couple of minutes in between checking in and out books and um, and so you can write a little poem about it right and I guess one thing that that reminded me of was um, at one point you ask in the poem I think about like um, ads on computers you, you wrote um, generating ads and having to think what sad sap do they take me for? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I, I guess I guess like for me too there was also this contrast um 
sometimes spoken as it is there, but oftentimes I feel like unspoken between like, um, let's say the rest of the world and, and the library, if that makes sense. Yeah. I, I, you know, I think in, you know, one, one thing that I hear every now and then is just the notion that like, if, a, if the library was an institution that was proposed in the United States today, it, there'd be no way that there would ever exist. Like if it wasn't an institution that already existed, there's no way that we would spend public funds, like spend public funds to give everybody access to books. Well, well, if they want access to books, they can buy them. Why, why should we spend money to give them books? Yeah. And there's always these wars with like the various publishers trying to figure out how to extort more money from libraries for the, for the books they give out for free. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's definitely true. And, and you want to, you want to be careful about that, um, and and so at at the same time too, I think there's a lot of romantic ideas about the library and how the library functions that um, are are nice and are nice and good in some ways, but also we have to be very thoughtful and very careful about where it's um, a big one is like public noise. So, you know, traditionally, I think libraries are quiet places, and that makes sense because it's a place where a lot of people come to read or to study or to work quietly, either by themselves or in small groups. And so the library is a quiet place that is a value of that space. But um, so often that is also used against people. Like if you're a loud person, or if you and the people that you're around converse loudly, that's a way where a library can say, you're the kind of people who can't be here. Because if you can't be quiet, then you can't be in the library. Right. And I guess too, maybe if, um, by what, like, I guess by way of like to dispelling some of the romanticism, like, how did you, how did you become a, a librarian? What's, what's it been like? Um, well, I, I started in, I started in college as a page and um, just working part-time while getting an undergraduate degree. And then I, uh, I went to grad school and was a teacher there, uh, a TA at, at Temple in Philly. And then um, after that, I moved back to Boise, Idaho, which is where I went to college. Um, and I had no... I think sometimes, I, I don't know, people have different experiences of it, but I more or less had this expectation that if I got an MFA, that is a degree I can use to be a professor of English. And that just didn't really work out. Like I didn't, I can't say I was too motivated to be a professor of English because like the adjunctification had already started to happen pretty pretty badly by the time I finished grad school and then it was just like I was moving from a place to another place and uncertainty about how I even would apply to be an adjunct if I wasn't just getting fed directly from a TA position into the the same college that I worked at or whatever so I had to figure something else out and there I bumped around a couple of different things and then finally landed on being an animal cremator, um, largely out, out, 
just sort of off of a whim, just seeing an ad for being an animal cremator. It's like, I hate my job at a call center. Why not try being an animal cremator? It couldn't be that bad. Um, yeah. And then, um, honestly, health insurance drove me to try to be a librarian again, or to try to be a person who worked at libraries, just because I, I, I would like health insurance. That would be very nice. Yeah, that's um, that's why a lot of us do do the things we do. I think. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, you know, it, on on the one hand, if it's if it's something that you can enjoy or find value in like that's that's good i consider myself very lucky because i actually really like working at a library and working for the public but i can i definitely understand people who find themselves stuck either working a job that's they really really hate because they need the health insurance or you know also not being able to find work that offers them health insurance in the first place. I guess to like bring it, bring it back to the libraries again, you know, Yeah. like you wrote at one point about um, an old man uh, falling asleep to YouTube videos and you then asked. That's, that's, yeah, that's one of my favorite, my very <laughs> yeah, favorite I really, poems. I really, well, do you want to, do you want to read it then? Or is that? Yeah, sure. Okay, go for it. Um, I think I read it like this. This old man, he played one, he played two, three, four Vocaloids on YouTube and went to sleep. Should our policy demand he be roused by Vocaloid dreams? Let him sleep. Yeah, I really like that one too. Yeah, they are they are two different poems, but this but the second one is kind of it's it's kind of weird without the first. Yeah, and that's and that's kind of like a lot of the times there were poems or in here where I was like they they kind of went together but at the same time they were they were still separate because I think like the one where you asked the question, should our policy demand he be roused from Vocaloid dreams? Like that uh, in and of itself is like a poem. And it's, uh, I think, gets to your perspective about, as you're saying, like the policies libraries have and the way they can be used against people. Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, for part of, part of what kind of charges that poem for me is that I am, I am asked, I'm asked to make people wake up. And, and a lot of the times that policy is sort of put to me, it, it's, it's put to me in, in ways that I find really questionable. But in order to do my job, I have to do this thing where like, I have to rouse a man, like, a, like clearly a very old man um, who's falling asleep while watching Vocaloids. Um, I have to, I have to like wake him. And I, I I don't know if if you'll if you'll let me if you'll indulge me with a little bit of a tangent on go that. for it go for it. Um, I one of the weirdest things that happens is that I'll I'll go to someone who like their eyes are closed and their arms are folded and their head is like laying on their shoulder and they're breathing heavily and they like everything about them is that they are asleep and so I'll I'll go up to them and I'll say. Uh, are you okay? Like that's, that's how I kind of introduce it. So I'm not like, Hey, wake up. Like, um, are you okay? And they'll, they'll turn to me and they'll say, Oh yeah, I'm fine. And I was like, I just want to let you know that you can't sleep here. And they'll say I wasn't asleep. And so I've, I've had this back and forth conversation with, 
some of the different people who work at the library and like how do i can't actually know whether they're asleep or not because like the status of their consciousness is not something that that i ever can actually know like how can i actually know that like a person is asleep i just have to look at them and when they tell me i wasn't sleeping like what what can i say like i i know what is happening inside your consciousness or happening inside your mind like i know that you weren't asleep i it it was just a it's just a weird thing that's happened a couple of different times where people have told me that they're not asleep and i'm like i'm well i'm i'm powerless to argue with you yeah that's like a a weird position to be in too and like i i don't think most people like i i live in los angeles and when i go to the, some of the public libraries here it seems like a lot of the librarians jobs is you know to you know stop the homeless people from staying there basically i don't think yeah, people yeah, re- yeah sure. i don't think people realize that seems to be a lot of the librarians jobs now yeah, and, and there's been things sort of written and said about it. Um, it was particularly bad, you know, during the recession, but it hasn't it hasn't changed in a in a lot of ways. In some ways it's the thing that's changed is that some libraries have embraced or rejected that situation. And that, you know, is this is a source I think for a lot of tension for you know, a, a lot of different constituencies or a lot of different people who are have a vested interest in the library. Right. And I guess too, the I at the same time you're you're doing all this, um, like the poem the the chapbook has you also, I guess, like looking out the window and seeing, I guess, the apricot tree. Yeah, that I mean that's that's a little bit of me because I I I own a house and I have an apricot tree and that's kind of a i don't know that's kind of a weird thing too there's there's a lot about like home ownership i don't know that i think is like we we moved out to a smaller town from the place that we both had lived before you know in in this sort of act is basically this act of gentrification but it's it's a weird conversation to have with people in who are older than us who are like really excited about how smart we were that we bought a house before the property values around here exploded for no for for no good reason like our our property values have increased and we've done nothing but make the house worse yeah that it yeah i mean and that's to get back maybe to something else we want to talk about and that's often how landlords function not to not to say you're a landlord but that's just I guess how no, I mean, and works. No, I I mean that's that's something where I have to I have to square myself with with that because I that's not a position I I want. Like I, I don't know, earlier earlier today seeing Steele talk about universal housing, that actually started to be some some of the more recent poems that I've been writing about and reading Bernadette Mayer and that sort of like utopian vision. Oh, you've been not to interrupt, but you've you've been reading her um, book called Utopia. Yeah, yeah, and and David W. Pritchard sort of got me onto the whole utopian thing. Um, him and Andy both, um, and it's yeah. It's him and really I used great. to talk about it a lot when he would, before he was unjustly banned. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, but yeah, so there's I like we've been thinking about like what are ways that we can go and have people live 
you know, we have a small house, but a large yard. Like, can we build bungalows here so that people can live here? And I think that finding a way to do things like that is a better use of like this, the very bad system that we have of property ownership and value and at least do something in the short term for someone yeah well you mentioned steel and i know you're a big fan of the uh the landlord's poem um so like i guess what what's your read on that on on that poem yeah i i it's i mean it's it's so good um it really is something that i think like i don't know fuck your plums in your fucking icebox. Like, get that poem in front of people. No, that's exactly my feeling. And one of my favorite things people do on Twitter now, especially um, Brendan, nice try officer, he loves to uh, send that poem to people when they ask for leftist poetry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's great. That's great. Um, the, the thing that definitely resonated with it for me is... Um, is the the sort of like the desire for nature and the desire to have this sort of lugubrious uh, nature uh, filled life, but then having you know the having the landlord at the end sort of pop up and and dispel it, um, but but to do it in a way that I think like is is the way something like that should pop up. In, in a poem like that where it's not like uh but then the landlord ruins it for me um but no it's like we have to we have to do something in order to get that like we cannot let the landlord live yeah exactly and like in your poems you you have that same sort of attitude both towards like you know nature and i think in you before we we started recording you meant you kind of compared how you wrote about nature to how steel's writing about nature and i thought that was like really interesting and, and right because I think you're both coming at it from that same kind of Marxist kind of perspective. And like I said earlier, you you start by you know paraphrasing some Marx in your chapbook. Yeah, and I I mean some of it too is I think maybe it's a it's a response to the the poor use of nature in some of the other areas of poetry, especially like a very quietist sort of area um for me for me personally like when i started to get into poetry in in a very sort of serious and um concentrated way mary oliver was a poet who i spent a lot of time reading and, and really liking and it's been a long time coming where it's like confronting with how kind of uh, really shitty she can be not just about like using nature in these very like you know not only in a, an aesthetic way having some problems with the way that nature operates in the poetics but also like how incredibly mean-spirited she can be about people who really do not deserve her mean-spirited attitudes there's one poem of hers uh Blueberry about blueberries, which is a reference to a much older and much more famous poem that she wrote about blueberries. And like in regular Mary Oliver fashion, like she goes out to pick blueberries and has a mystical encounter with a deer and then 
uh, like has to walk away from her mystical encounter with a deer um, to continue to live her life. You know, I see the way you talk about nature as like an extension of steel in like this line in this uh, stanza you wrote. Uh, begin with the tree in my yard, take its fruits, then move across the neighborhood, the city, county, state, the whole damn country. Yeah, yeah, and, and until until you too have have cracked the nut or cracked the pit. Yeah, uh, yeah. So here's here's something where and and you know uh, I've 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 had a conversation or or two out there about it, but it's like. Um, I'm, I'm a, I'm a product of this incredibly fucked up country. So in a lot of ways, I can't help some of the like stupid fucked up shit that has gone into my brain. It's stuff that I need to unfuckify, but, um, but it is what it is. So I, I really like that poem because originally I didn't like the squirrel, but then I realized, no, it's like that squirrel's eaten an apricot that I'm not going to pick it. Like, uh, I'm not going to get to it. It's too high in the tree or it's going to fall and I'm not going to see it. So it might as well fucking eat it. Like there are all these fucking apricots that aren't going to get fucking eaten. Like you should just take them. You should take them and you should eat them. And you're an asshole if you don't let people eat your fucking apricots that you aren't going to eat. No, for sure. And I, I mean, something else you, I mean, I think going off that you, you also wrote, with the apricot drooping, I deny universal nature. Bow snapped by stone fruit is not a repetition of the monomyth. And I feel, I feel like um, you're. <laughs> that's that's one of those places too where you're you're clearly aiming for something uh, different. You're aiming for a world where there's uh, no landlords, let's say, and the we're not jealous of squirrels. Yeah, yeah, or and. Uh, yeah no i absolutely or that like the the deployment you know where so much of where nature comes up in these poems and i think so much of where nature comes up in just where i go around is like nature is this thing that is used against against goodness or used against people in ways that are like deeply unfair and deeply unthinking where it's like i don't know the whole you know human nature as this thing that is this unchangeable a historical like eternal essence that exists in all humans which somehow includes like the very specific way in which men and women can port themselves around each other is absurd and so like con confronting nature as like this thing that's going to be used to browbeat or in some cases literally beat um people is you know it 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 really it really makes you it really makes you wish that you could actually actually you know there's something in the way and the landlord is just as just as well of a figure to use for that thing that's in the way yeah and i mean you you basically say you just want for nature a quiet spot to sit and watch the the sunset well, and so that that poem, and and I hope it's okay that I'm just talking about my poems. Um, no, that, that's the point of the podcast. <laughs> okay, um, the the thing about about those two poems is that what I want from nature, as that quiet spot, is put against besides the food and shelter and the conditions for life, um, which is one something that we 
get from nature or that we ought to be getting from nature. And that um, is like so much of that is, that's all like the food and the shelter and the conditions for life are all things that nature bestows on to us. Like as, uh, as I, as I understand it and I'm, I'm more than happy to have someone correct me in, in like the Marxist sense, but you know, uh, labor as a metabolism of nature and reshaping nature so that it can serve the ends of humanity so that, you know, the environment is more suited for our living or that we can have access to food and shelter and the conditions for life against it, against a nature that is more or less indifferent to our ability to have those things. Um, and that's not a product, you know, Jeff Bezos didn't make food taste good and Mark Zuckerberg does not make shelter a thing that protects us from the elements. It's something that we all make all together in our relationship to nature and the products of our socialized labor or for the fruit of our labor, if you will. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And so that like it for, for me, that was sort of where that turned is like, yeah, one thing I want from nature absolutely is like being quiet and slightly uncomfortable and watching sitting and watching the lights change. Um, and that to me is sort of describing like a, a very perfect scenario for what a library can at times offer or what nature and sort of the open air and good conditions can offer. Um, but then I had to like stop and remind myself is like, wait, I also want the food and the shelter and the ability to continue to live. Those are also important things to get from nature. What you just say, like reminded me of um, when I had taken on, I, I asked her um, like, are we still going to have restaurants in like a post in a communist society? Like, how do you feel about libraries in that sense? Are they, are they still going to be there? Cause I think a lot of people might instinctively say yes, but I mean, you're a librarian though. I mean, what's your, how do you view that? I guess. Um, so yeah, that's something that I've, that I've thought a little bit about, but in, I, I wonder if, if maybe I can sort of put some of this forward and see what you think of it is that in a lot of ways, what the library offers is something that is a general good that I think in any sort of society, the goods or the good things that libraries offer, like, um, you know, in, in some very sort of vague ways, like where access to information, access to community, access to the means of communication, um, in, you know, the, uh, the access to resources to reproduce information or to extend and continue information, disseminate. Um, and then there are lots of ways in which it's actually just a, a space that is publicly available that people can be in with each other, do what they want to do, and share in this communal thing. And those are all very good things that I think in some future communist society, you would want to have those things. Um, but the institution as it exists today is a, is a product of the society in which we live in. And it's, and so there are things about the institution that will need to go away um, in order for that to be a, a part of it. So one one recent example 
that I've sort of seen and been thinking a little bit about has been the Toronto Public Library. Um, I don't know if you've heard about them. I'm going to try to pull something up really quickly about it. Oh, yeah, I'll this, go for it. The specific person, I think, is important to signal so that way people can look into it. But basically, the Toronto Public Library is letting uh, some TERFs have a meeting at the library. And a lot of people, I think very rightly, have been pointing out that, well, one, that that's just, that is generally not good, giving a platform for people who say that, you know, the right to be free of discrimination based on your gender identity is a right that people should have. And TERFs turn around and say, well, no, that's actually not a right. You should be able to be discriminated against based on your gender identity. Like, that's not, that's not good. Um, but also, that directly violates the Toronto Public Library's policy on being an open and inviting place. That does mean accepting, you know, a wide range of intellectual freedom, but it can't be intellectual freedom such that it advocates for the discrimination and exclusion of people. Um, and so the Toronto Public Library has this very mealy-mouthed, you know, excuse that, you know, they're for intellectual freedom. And so even if they don't agree with the, you know, the content of a speaker, they can't say that that speaker can't use public space. People rightfully and rather, I'm rightfully pointing out that that is not in keeping with their own policies, but I don't know how effective that sort of pointing to the policy is because in the end, their decision to uphold the policy or not is really in the decision of that library director and the extent to which the library director wants to go and do something that will make people not feel safe in the library or make people not feel welcome in the library is often a decision that's really made just to perpetuate the institution as it exists. Um, because if you say that the speaker can't come in, you know, maybe this becomes a bigger issue that has more political implications that has some damaging or deliterous effect on the institution. And so in order to avoid some future consequence to the institution, we're going to say this thing go with this decision that is not only in violation of the policy, but just in, in my opinion, as a library person, not a good use of the library. Right. And it sounds like what you're one way to put what you're saying is, you know, that um, libraries effectively aren't controlled by um, the, their, the people who go to them. The... Yeah. Yeah. I'm, that's, that's definitely true. And that I think is something that, you know, if, if you have if you have an institution that has portions of leadership that are really interested and engaged in doing that or working with their communities where the library exists, those, you know, they can try to find an approach that would be better. But in so many ways, the library sort of functions as this thing that's sort of like sitting inside of a spot and that the community is just some sort of the, the community in the library has this sort of separate relationship. And in some ways that can work positively because sometimes the communities that these libraries sit in are not good communities. That, that's to say like, 
they are communities that are not welcoming or they're communities that are very violent or that communities that have really what well, I just personally think are just bad ideas about how to live with other people. And so the library might be a respite from some of that. But in other cases, the library is just an extension. The library is an extension of a city government or the library is an extension of a taxing district. And even though there are some very high-minded ideas that go into the making of the library, it doesn't stop being a part of the world just because it has high-minded ideas that might point to something outside of the world. Yeah, and I think this would be a good what another like good way to get at that would be to ask like <clears throat> with um Jamie Barut's work uh, effectively, you know, Isabel's talked about this as well, effectively trying to end the publishing industry. And I guess like how would how do you view like a library in a world where I guess books aren't produced the way they are now where books are you know, maybe produced the way your your chapbook is just by people who want to make them and share them with their friends. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that the library, I, uh, one, one part of the ALA that always ruffles my jimmies is, um, <laughs> is uh, the, the notion that a part of our professional duty as librarians is to uphold copyright law, which is like, <laughs> what? <laughs> The Library of Alexandria didn't have any copyright law. You're the cops. Right. Yeah. And and they're making you cops. Yeah. No, I I I I feel it. That's you know, in in some in some ways it's yeah, uh, like upholding the property rights of uh oh I don't even I'm I'm having a hard time even just coming up random house. Like up, upholding their rights, making sure that no one's violating Random House's rights. But don't or, you want to help J.K. Rowling get more money? Oh yeah, I really do. That's what I really, really, really want to do. I mean, it's it's something where you know I've and and you can you can find ways to skirt it, but ultimately it lets me know like I can't. However much I really like what I do, I can't. I can't pretend that it's something separate um, from the shit that I don't like that rules the fucking world. Um, y- you know, you can like get someone up to the desk and there's an item that they can't get. And it seems like it's really f- hard to find in places or that we won't purchase because we're a public library. And so like public libraries, they generally don't have a lot of like very dense specialized or technical um, or academic sources, because that's just not really the people who go to the library. That's not an item that's going to generally circulate in a public library. We can use interlibrary loan to try to bring some of those items in for the particular uh, patron that that wants that item. And so interlibrary loan is one of my very, very favorite things. Um, uh, but some, you know, you can be like, you know, I can't suggest that you use this site because it is a violation of uh, copyright law. But if you were to use this site, you could find eBooks of this particular book or some, something to that effect. Or like this thing is, I, I really lean as heavily as I can on the public domain. Like this is in the public domain. So 
we don't have a copy of this book, but this is a book that you can get for free um, because it no one owns the rights to it. So if you find a copy online, uh, you can you can get it. Right, and I guess um, to ask more specific a uh, more specific question, like why did you decide to share your chapbook the way you did? Oh, I I mean, so I've kind of I've given up on in in a lot of ways I've given up on publication in in the way that I think. I, um, I, I more or less assumed would be the way that I would need to or want to publish or put poetry out there. Cause I don't know. I'm like very sort of led towards like being an MFA. Well, that's what you do. You know, you, you professionalize this thing you professionalize being a poet and so you get you know you get the right degree and then you write a lot and then you submit these things for books and then you get a couple of books and then you can use that to get a job and then you can use that job to have time to write books to get a better or different job um and so you would use the public you would use this sort of publication thing to do it and um it it wasn't really something that matched my interest or ambition and just having enough encounters with, with people who I thought were really cool and who wrote really cool poetry and just were like, yeah, publishing your trying to get a small press book to publish 200 copies of your book that very few people will read so that you can go to a slightly larger press and ask them, or ask them to publish your book to get a slightly larger print run or all of those things that happen in the business things that you know i i'm not an expert in so i can't i shouldn't really be saying anything very definitive about it it's just something that really doesn't appeal to me whereas it really appeals to me to make a book that if people want it they can get it um if people want a copy of it i can print it off for them because it you know it's something that i can do i can get cheap printing um and it just seems it seems like a better way to go than to be a careerist and try to sort of chase after this publication game yeah totally i mean i've more i think i have some basically the same position i've more or less given up on publishing you know because you know i don't know if you see us online you probably do but you know there are poets who are like really extremely talented like just today uh, Nikki Walschlager was talking about how no one was picking up her third book or some press got back to her and said it's good but not up, up to our high standard and it's like yeah and she's amazing yeah like, like, how, like how can change you your, change your standard like who who do they have that they got that they like reanimated Shakespeare or something right right and I mean I yeah it's it's one like re rejection is something that I you know, I kind of accept and it's, it's not, it's not fun, but it is what it is. But it's like, why did you decide to like reject this person in like the really just like very short sighted, like not very thoughtful way. Just say, uh, we don't want to publish your book. I don't know that. Yeah. As, as James would say, the editors will be liquidated so fast. <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh but and and then uh jamie and 
uh, her last name is that Beirut. Yes, nailed yeah. it. So, so Jamie's piece on the Poetry Foundation, I think, is just like really spot on. Is that like we people who write poetry need to like disentangle ourselves from these things because these things aren't serving us they're serving them and the them in these equations are not the kind of people that you would want to serve because they're parasites on human life like they some of them literally feast on human blood i'm not going to disagree with that but so like i guess too i want to ask you about um like how you came to this like particular online space. How so? How did you like get into Paint Bucket, or how did you meet, say, like David Pritchard or something? So, so David Pritchard, I met through Holly Raymond through the MFA, and so that was you know, I, I was very I was very lucky at Temple to meet some really cool people, and Holly Raymond and David W. Pritchard are a part of it. I'm not exactly sure how Holly met David. I think it was just you know, back in the, um, the 20 teens, um, Tumblr, like a weird Tumblr tanky kind of space. We love the Tumblr tankies. Yeah. It's a a weird confluence of, of, um, poets, tankies, and like 14 year olds who are drawing personas. Like it was a weird, it was a weird mix. Um, but I think that's how, how they met each other. And so I just had the opportunity to meet with David a couple of times, uh, while I was living on the East coast. And I've tried to keep as we, we've tried to stay in touch and, um, David and Andy actually stopped by, uh, Boise, Idaho on their way from California to Massachusetts, which was a very, very fun little, little get together. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds really cool. But how'd you, I guess, how'd you come to uh, Paint Bucket and, and stuff? And, yeah, and so um, I, I try to write, you know, I the, the writing practice has been pretty sporadic since I left graduate school. Um, but I try to write one poem for my birthday because it's like, if there's one day I'm going to write a poem, it's going to be my birthday. And so I showed uh, David this birthday poem and I was recently introduced to the group chat that Dave was in the Mike, the Mike gold. And, um, and he was like, Hey, you should send this to James and have him publish it. He'll probably publish it because it's your birthday. Um, and, and so I did. And James was like, Oh, well, it's, it's your birthday. I, I definitely want to publish this. And so he, he just put it on the website and I just thought it was really, I, that, that alone I thought was, kind of remarkable because I've I've worked with at least one group that's done an online like a lit magazine and it seems from one perspective to be such a tortured process it's like you have to get the submittable and if you have the submittable you have to have money coming in somehow because you have to pay for the submittable and so you have to like have all these readers just really decide all of these things about it and have this very like 
this very judgmental eye about who is going to go in and who is not going to go in. And so I just found it remarkable that like, yeah, it's, it's online. So it, as long as you're willing to do it, you can just put a poem online and it, it doesn't, it can just go there. Yeah. And this is the, you're talking your birth, your birthday poem was the uh, legendary rice cooker poem. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, that, that definitely, that introduced me to a lot of things. I, one, I've never encountered um, Twitter brand, like brand Twitter before. And so I found it absolutely remarkable that James could get Zojirushi to wish me a happy birthday because of my birthday <laughs> poem that ostensibly they read, even though I was saying like I was I was comparing like wanting to give birth to a child with my wife to cooking rice and beans inside of their ovum shaped rice cooker like <laughs> like that is that on brand for zoji rushi for a couple hours i really did think you might get a free rice cooker though yeah yeah and and i was you know i i i, I don't have the kind of like life power that james has where i was like i'm not sure i'm not sure if we should push too hard for a free rice cooker and he was like yeah yeah we definitely do and and he took me along for that and i i enjoyed it quite a bit and so from there i've just you know mostly been lurking and watching and reading and listening and it's it's a cool it's a very it's a very cool group um i'm like running into things that wendy trevino writes has been also like very um I don't know if inspiring is the right word or a word that anyone likes, but like very, very moving, very, very much at, at a lot of admiration for Wendy Trevino and for uh, Isabel and for the whole, the whole group. Yeah. So this might be a, I'll put you on the spot a bit, but like what, I guess, what have you been reading lately? So I've, I've been, the the thing I've been trying to read and it's been kind of a struggle is the the new Frederick Jameson book on allegory. And it's mostly because he has a chapter on Dante and I love Dante. And so I, I want to read, I want to grasp the first part of the book so that when I get to the Dante chapter, I'm really plugged into what's going on in the Dante chapter. Um, but there's, something that's been kind of exciting is there's a bookstore that's gone out of business um, a couple of blocks from my house and it, it went out of business in the strangest way. They, they were kicked out by the person that they, that they were lent, uh, renting the space from, but they had so many books that it took them about a year of doing an out of business sell sale where basically everything was like 60, everything was straight 60% off the price that they were charging for it. And they would just like keep hauling up these books from this basement in these boxes and just like throwing them on the shelves just as quickly as they could to try to get people to, to take them because they would, they just lose it all if they didn't. So by the time they were done, they really didn't get, all of the books out and so the guy who owns the space has just been putting the boxes out every day to just be like we need to get rid of these books if they aren't out by the end of the day they get thrown in the dumpster and so you know it's it's 
it's something that happens to books is, you know, if no one wants them, they get recycled or thrown away. Um, you know, it's not always what you want to see, but we've been picking up some, some books for that. So we've gotten a history of the 14th century, which looks pretty neat. Um, this old magazine on, uh, chess, uh, like just like 1970s chess. Oh, nice. That, but that has a good aesthetic. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really cheesy, like Xeroxed kind of pages or, or, um, oh yeah. Like printer, like those old printer pages, like all of it just print printed off of a printer, um, which is cool. There's this book of poetry. Let me let me grab it right now. Okay. Okay, I'm back. I have it here. Have you ever heard of Harold Wyndham or Wyndham? Uh, with a Y. Yeah. Well, it 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 it's definitely a a poet guy name, Harold Wyndham. Um. But. Love and Marriage is this book that we picked up, and it it really is just this dude's chat book, basically, because it's again like it looks like it's been typewritten. Um, it has some like um, woodblock print art printed into it, and it's just it's just like one signature with a staple. And the, I don't know. Hopefully, hopefully he's not a bad guy. I'll I'll figure out whether he's a bad guy when I read the book. But I just thought it was cool. Like this is a this is a weird artifact that came out of the bowels of this bookstore, and it could have gone in the dumpster, but it hasn't gone there yet. Yeah, I don't know. If, did you listen to the second episode I did with Up from Some Dirt? Uh, no, I hadn't. No, because he uh, he used to run a bookstore, a used bookstore in Lexington, and he talked about. Um, I guess he had a large poetry collection and they had to, and they changed ownership and he had to, um, you know, get rid of a lot of books essentially. And he, and he talked about how he was haunted by, you know, a few, a few books that he knows he may never see again because, you know, they're quite rare and ephemeral poetry books that he, that he got rid of and they're now they're in the landfill. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is that, yeah, that's, that's nothing to sneeze about. Because there are, there are books out there that will never exist again, and there are books that we don't even know, and and they'll never exist again. Yeah, I recently, I recently got some chapbooks, um, and like they're like hand signed, like you know, twenty three of fifty or whatever, and I'm like, oh my god, this is just so stressful looking at them, thinking about like losing them, you know. <laughs> and and yeah, that that makes that makes trying to like decide what you actually keep or not really hard because on like you, I don't know you you're lucky that most of them are so thin, I guess, because like it helps you pack as many of them in as you can. But yeah, if you have to decide something that has to go, like how can you decide this book that may never exist anywhere else? Like that's the one that's got to go. Sorry. Yeah. And as I've said, as I've said before on this podcast, like poetry is so ephemeral, but it's treated as so timeless. And like holding stuff like that in my hand, it's like, oh my god! Like you, you, you really feel that it's a physical thing. Yeah, and and maybe to circle back around to what you were saying about, um, like what what libraries in the future, libraries after the death of publishing, would be like. 
I think in a lot of ways that would be something that a library would have a lot of value in that world because if we're not you know so so many garbage books are made and they're made that no one wants um that no one wants to make um that just get pumped out into the world and find their ways into public libraries because you have to have a book on this and you have to have a book on that and it has to be timely and if it's a book that circulates you have to keep it um you know it, in, in a future where those that kind of publishing model doesn't exist and maybe one where the production or the publication of a book is something that's rare and something that happens in small volumes having a having a place to put them so that you don't have to decide like am I going to destroy the last one in the world maybe there's a place for it yeah I, I totally that, yeah, that sounds really, really cool. Um, that, um, is there anything else you want to talk about? Um, I mean, if you if you ever want to talk about video games, I have a lot of things to say about video games. But, oh, uh, that's a different that's I have, a different podcast. <laughs> yeah, we should probably do that. I have a lot of takes on video games. I was sadly I was a gamer. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. I'm I'm glad that I got I'm glad that I got out of it just in time. Uh, being a gamer or like identifying in 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 that like sick way, sickly way. Yeah, Cause it's I, like, Oh yeah. To be honest, one of the things that really made me leave was on um, Gamergate. I was, I was a counter-strike player for like literally a decade and Gamergate happened and global offensive just became unplayable. Oh, I can only imagine. I, it was, <laughs> it was awful. It was true. It's truly one of, there are very few internet, like I'm like way too online, but there are, there are a few internet things that like I have flashbacks to and, Gamergate during the playing Counter Strike during during Gamergate is one of the few. Yeah, I can I can only imagine. I I I guess I was I I consider myself lucky because by the time that thing hit, I had already kind of disconnected from, like, you know, I I the one thing that I am happy to have said that I've said to Mackenzie work online, and it's like that's one thing valuable about the internet is that I can say something to Mackenzie work, but it's just that. Uh, gamer theory like deflected me away from so much of that stuff where it it was very helpful for me to actually like think about video games in a way that was very separated instead of something that like if i didn't get to play video games i would cry like a baby which is like very you know that's a that's an embarrassing thing to to feel and admit as a as a person um so I'm glad I disconnected from a lot of that stuff by the time Gamergate happened because I can only imagine what like wading through that bullshit must must have been like. Yeah, it was. I mean, and then the the the, the dynamic of um, video games like that is uh, there could you know you play competitive games and you can't basically if everyone in your team is yelling the n word and you leave the match you're the one penalized. So that's the kind of yeah yeah. <laughs> It's <laughs> the incentives there are just in incredibly both a metaphor for I suppose the present and incredibly fucked. Yeah, yeah, and well, and I can also imagine too, like it's really fucked because like if the if the other team is doing shit like that or saying shit like that, like now there's really only one option, and you have to win this game because if you lose this game, then you're just you're just falling into their whole fucking twisted worldview 
of why games matter because it demonstrates who's better than who in a way that is like twisted in that whole thing oh my god i i'm sorry i wasn't ready to talk about oh no it's okay we can we maybe we could talk about video games another time or something i i i'd be happy to talk about video games for sure we should definitely yeah we could just we'll do another podcast poetry and video games or something poetry video games uh that that'd be funny yeah i'm sure we can make it work well (laughs) well thank you for talking yeah yeah i i i really enjoyed talking with you and uh just to again you know i've already given you many accolades but the the podcast is really great um you have really great people on it and it's mostly the other people yeah i i think i think you have a good i think you have a good presence in the conversation to help help people say things that are you know have a have a good conversation with them or or be be present enough to let them i guess i you know coming to the end of it i realize i like a lot of rambling but you have a good you have a very encouraging presence to encourage good people to ramble so i appreciate that well thank you for rambling <laughs> Anytime. <laughs>